0: Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank.
1: We all have different perspectives on things. One man may think his wife is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen while someone else might see her as less attractive. And one person's perfect job might be working with numbers all day. When you think of a creative or adventurous person, they wouldn't like to do that. So while it's part of our makeup to have different viewpoints in life, and different talents, we are all called to have the same spiritual perspective when it comes to knowing and following Jesus Christ. unfortunately, Two different spiritual perspectives are lived out in this world every day. We see it in the evil and the good, the people that follow Jesus Christ and the people who don't. I'm not just talking about people who are good because we all know good people or people who do bad things because we know them too. But we're talking about God's perspective on those who obey Jesus and those who don't. And that's a different perspective than people just being good and evil. We also see both of those perspectives In the book of Revelation, one group worships the worldly leader and blasphemes God, while the other group will rejoice at every opportunity to know God and to serve him no matter what the consequences are. We need to ask ourselves which perspective we're following right now. Are we following God or are we following the ways of the world? And then how is that affecting our daily lives? Because we are going to see the consequences of that for the people that do or don't follow Jesus in the book of Revelation. I'm Debbie Blank, it's time to evaluate our hearts and our attitudes about God and this world before it's too late, because Jesus is coming soon.
0: And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. There are definitely different perspectives on how to live life, which made me think of the world's definition of winners and losers. Being materially successful, politically powerful, Beautiful or famous puts you into the world's winner circle. Doing whatever it takes to enjoy the best life has to offer is considered to be the smart way to live. In contrast, the world often sees people who live a spiritual life of truth, grace, unselfishness, and obedience to the Lord as being losers because their focus is not on the trappings of worldly success. But we know that putting Christ on the throne of our lives is the beginning of true victory in this life and the next. As we see in Revelation 15, the victors are not the ones who succumbed to the beast system, but the ones who lived and gave their lives for the Lord.
1: We see such an interesting contrast throughout this entire book of good and evil, of right and wrong, of God versus Satan. It's an age-old story. There's nothing new. And yet God continues to reiterate that philosophy over and over in this book and in different ways each time. In chapter 14, we saw the faithful versus the faithless, the people who followed God versus the people who followed a religious system, or Satan. Nothing new to that. So as we open Revelation 15 today, it gives us an overview of the final plagues that are going to come upon the world, which is really an overview also of this last three and a half years. So chapters 14 and 15 are overviews. Chapter 14 focused on the people, and chapter 15 is focusing on the consequences to the decisions those people make. That's the difference in these. But what's going to happen in these three and a half years, we have very little information. Really, chapter 16 and then 17 and 18 give us information about the last three and a half years of the tribulation period But it's going to be so devastating that God spends two chapters, 14 and 15, giving us overviews to prepare for these last days. And I think that's also God showing people at that time that he's giving them one last opportunity. We saw that in the gospel being preached, but it's also his way of saying, "Okay, it's been tough, but the last three and a half years are going to be like nothing you've ever seen before. So open your eyes and be prepared and turn to me today. I kind of think that's what he's saying in these chapters.
0: It is amazing the grace of God all the way through the tribulation. It's just when you speak about amazing grace, this is where I think his grace is so amazing. It's something that I think we've talked about this before. I have just been so blown away by seeing the grace of God in this particular study of Revelation that we've been doing. So we have grace of God toward the obedient and the disobedient. But we want to look at the differences between those who are faithful and those who are faithless in Revelation.
1: When I taught Revelation 10 years ago, understand I had taught it several times before that. But 10 years ago, I remember specifically saying that Revelation is all about the future and all about getting to know Jesus and what he's going to do in the future. But there really isn't a lot of application here because there's so many details about the future. Well, boy, am I convicted that that is so wrong. If you've been listening to this discussion of Revelation, you've seen how much application there is in here, how much Jesus spends time on talking about himself, on the need to worship God, the desire to worship God, on the different people and how they've responded to God and how they poured out their love and worship for him and how we can do the same of the situations that people have gone through and how they've lived through them and also the unbelievers and how they've responded. So this book is full of application. And if we wanna understand that, we just need to go back and review as you said, by looking first at the faithful people that we've seen in this book. The first faithful followers we see in Revelation, besides the churches that are mentioned in chapters two or three, can be seen in heaven in chapters four and five. And those are the elders. Certainly you have the angels and the four living creatures But you have the elders who were human beings and who are now in heaven. What are they doing? They are worshiping God day and night because that's where their heart is. They're before the throne of grace. They recognize how awesome God is. They've lived their lives for him and now they're worshiping him in heaven. What a great opening scene that is to the reward that we will have. When we follow Jesus Christ on this earth.
0: We think about those fifth seal martyrs when we look at Revelation 6. And we saw that when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, it says, I saw underneath, this is John speaking, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We have the faithful martyrs under their throne in chapter 6, and we see that their faith has been because of the word of God and their testimony, which they maintained until the death. So that's how faithful they were.
1: Yeah, so you have two different groups of people, the faithful elders, and now you have martyrs. As we move into chapter 7, we see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they are faithful until the middle of the tribulation, when in chapter 14 we saw that they were martyred. So they lived their lives for Christ, but then they were martyred. In chapter 7, also we see the great multitude that we're told come out of the great tribulation. So those are martyrs. And in every one of these cases, they aren't mourning the fact that they were martyred. They're instead worshiping Jesus because they're in heaven with their Savior. That's their goal. Their goal isn't to live a life on this earth and have health and wealth. Our goal is to be with Christ on this earth and then in heaven. So we then move on to the two witnesses in Revelation 11, who lived faithfully for God, sharing the gospel for three and a half years until they were martyred. Our next group of faithful followers comes from the discussion in Revelation thirteen eight of those people whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, how they did not follow the Antichrist or worship him. Now, it doesn't tell us they're martyred in that passage yet, but they will be later. And then finally, we look at Revelation 14, 13, and it talks about those who die in the Lord before we see the final harvest take place later on in Revelation 14. Now, for most of these people, they have something in common, and that is during the tribulation period, they're all martyred. Not every believer will be martyred because many will live to inhabit the new kingdom, Jesus will dwell on earth, the millennial kingdom. But here we see that most of the people during the tribulation period are gonna be martyred. And when they are, they're not sad about it. They're rejoicing and glorifying God because he is gonna reign, because he is gonna bring judgment on the sinners, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is worthy of all praise. That's the vision of a faithful follower These happen to be martyred, but that's how we're supposed to live on this earth all the time, worshiping and honoring God in every action, every thought, everything we do so that we can be true, obedient followers of
0: Jesus. And focusing on the Lord is what allowed them to be able to do that. In chapter 14, verse 13, when it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, and you think, blessed are the dead, And you think about people being martyred in that, that's a tragedy. But like you said, it's not. We look at death one way. God looks at it another way. I think somewhere in the scriptures it also says, blessed in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. That's because absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul said that. It was hard for him to decide whether he wanted to remain and do the work of the Lord or if he'd rather be in the presence of the Lord. He was torn. And of course, it would be better to be in the presence of the Lord, but he had work to do on earth so he was content to do that but when you think of it that way and the glory that just on the other side of death there is that glory for those who are believers and who belong to the lord we get to see a picture of that in heaven in revelation
1: our inheritance is not on this earth it's in heaven that's where our focus should be but while we're on the earth we need to follow christ and do what he says In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's our job here on earth is to die to sin. That means that our focus is not on the things of the world but on the things of heaven. If we live with our minds heavenly minded, we will be focused on Jesus, because one day we may be martyred and go see Jesus that way, or we're going to be raptured or we're going to die. But one way or another, we're going to end this life on this earth, so we shouldn't focus on this as our inheritance. If we do, then we become the faithfulest people. And that's the second group of people we see in the book of Revelation, those who do not follow Jesus Christ. They are not mentioned in heaven with Jesus in chapters 4 and 5. The first time we see someone faithless is in Revelation 6 when we see the opening of the seals. We see the Antichrist and then war and then famine and then the murder of a fourth of the people on earth from war but also from pestilence and the consequences of war. In Revelation 6 later on with the opening of the sixth seal, we see, quote, the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The first faithless people we see are people who see God's hand, his wrath, being poured out, and instead of turning to him, they hide from him and turn away from him. Moving on to Revelation 9 in the sixth trumpet judgment, a 200 million man army comes forth that kills a third of the earth. When that happens, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. These people, when they see God actually, again, in a graver way, pouring forth his wrath on unbelievers, they even turn further away from God. And they continue to live their horrendous life of evil and the anti-God way. In Revelation, we're introduced to the beast, That we then see later in detail in Revelation 13, the beast and the false prophet, which are the Antichrist and the false prophet, who cause people to worship the Antichrist and to worship Satan because of their evil. And they blaspheme God. And the Antichrist, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, will go forth and claim himself to be God in the temple of God in Jerusalem. It can't get any worse than that. Now, Revelation 12, in the middle of that, Satan is introduced and he is the father of lies and he's thrown down to the earth knowing he has a short time. People worship him, we're told in Revelation 13. In Revelation 14 and 15, we've just seen Revelation 14, how God's wrath is poured out on those who accept the mark of the beast and who worship the Antichrist and their consequences, they're going to be reaped in the winepress of the fierce wrath of God which means they will go into eternity away from God. This is what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. And today we're going to see the consequences again of some of these people and how they've been acting.
0: It's a very sad thing when you see these people continuing to hide from God when he has done nothing but offer them his grace. When you don't take the grace of God, when you don't accept that, then there is nothing left but wrath. It seems hard to believe, but they have chosen the wrath of God. They have. So Revelation
1: 15, one opens up and says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. That is God's eventual judgment, the seven plagues. They're the last. That's the end once these are over. At the end of this chapter, it's only eight verses long. We're going to see and understand that a little bit more. And sandwiched in the middle is people's praising of God. But for now, let's go back to verse one. It's another sign. We saw two other signs in Revelation in chapter 12. One was Israel and one was Satan. Now we see a sign, which is it. This is it. This is God's wrath. No more chance. I believe after the gospel is shared, to the whole world, as it's mentioned in Revelation 14, that there is no more chance for people to accept Jesus Christ. But we'll see if that ends up happening. But now we have seven new angels, and these angels are carrying the seven plagues, or what we know as the seven bowl judgments from chapter 16. There's no more after this. We've seen the seal judgments, we've seen the trumpet judgments, we didn't see or understand the thunder judgments, as they are mentioned in Revelation 10, and now these seven bowls are the culmination of the seventh seal that Jesus opened, which poured out his wrath on this earth. And it says his wrath is finished. That's his thumos wrath. Again, that's the pouring out of God's wrath, his final judgment. And it's finished. It's done. It simply means the end. It's in the aorist tense, which means it's the reality of the event, not the timing. So it's not saying it's happening right now, but the reality is It's going to happen when God's wrath is fully poured out, and that's going to happen with the battle of Armageddon.
0: So continuing with verse 2, it says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. There's a lot in there, the sea of glass mixed with fire, and they're standing on it. So what is that about? I think a fire is part of judgment. Explain what this means. Well, first of
1: all, in the original Greek, when it says glass mixed with fire, it really means a glassy crystal. It doesn't necessarily mean fire as in judgment as we see it. And if that's the case, we can go back to Revelation 4, 6 and see that before the throne of God was a sea of glass. So this could simply be an explanation of them standing before God's throne. It could also mean with the fire, if fire is talking about judgment, or it could be talking about the fire from the incense before the throne of God, which includes the prayers of the saints. And we know that the prayers of the saints prior in Revelation have been poured out in a bowl onto this earth. So perhaps that's what we're talking about here. But it says they have come off victorious. These people who are there are overcomers. They have overcome the problems of the world to focus on God. And here it specifically says they've overcome the issues from the beast and from his image and from the Mark six six six, They won. They may not have taken it. They may have suffered here on earth. They may be martyrs, but they have overcome because now they are in heaven with Jesus, standing on that sea of glass with harps of God. In the book of Revelation, the only other instrument mentioned are trumpets but here we have harps. We know that David played a harp, that that was his soothing melody to calm Saul when he was before King Saul. It goes on to say in verse 3 that they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Well, what's the song of Moses? It's a song of deliverance. If we go back to Exodus, we see many similarities here. In Exodus, They had plagues. We see plagues mentioned in verse one. In the time of the deliverance, they walked through the sea, the Red Sea, to get to the promised land. Here they're on a sea of glass. Moses' prayer in Exodus 15 was a prayer of deliverance after God had delivered them. So this is a prayer of deliverance. There's a song of Moses then, there's a song of Moses now. And later in this chapter, we're going to see the glory of God, which was first introduced to the Israelites when they left Egypt. A lot of similarities here, but specifically the song is one of worship and deliverance and thanks to God.
0: When we look at the song of Moses from verse 3, we know that there is a song of Moses in Exodus, and there's a song of Moses in Deuteronomy. Is this a compilation of those two things or are other things added?
1: Well, actually it says it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So I see it as a compilation of things. In Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32, Moses did have the song of Moses. He gave that to the Israelites and it was a song of deliverance. But in the case of this, it also includes a lot of Psalms. Did you know that Moses wrote a lot of the Psalms? So it's quoting from some of those Psalms that he wrote, such as Psalm 90 and 92 and 86, and 98, and 111, just different excerpts from things that he gave in that. It also is quoting from Isaiah sixty six twenty three. 23. Now, I love this because if we know the book of Revelation, you know that it encompasses hundreds of quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. That's why J. Vernon McGee once said, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the 65 books that come before it because there's so many references to that. In the end of this song, it says, all the nations will come and worship before you. It tells us that very thing in Isaiah 66, 23. It says, it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And if you know the layout of the book of Isaiah, there's 66 chapters here. There's 66 chapters in the Bible. The first 39 chapters in Isaiah really deal with Old Testament issues and the struggles of the Israelites. And the last 27 chapters focus on Christ and his return, just like the first 39 books of the Bible focus on the Old Testament and the last 27 focus on Christ. It's divided very nicely, so it's not surprising that the second to the last verse in Isaiah should end with the fact that everyone will bow down and worship God. Moses was the most important prophet to the Jews, and it was prophesied with Moses that there would come a future prophet who would be more important, and that's Jesus. Now, the Muslims will tell you that's Muhammad, but nowhere in the Bible does it make reference to that. The prophet in the future would be Jesus, so it's not surprising that these people who are delivered are compiling here a song that deals with what Moses said, but also about Jesus because it's no longer about Moses. Moses was a precursor, a deliverer from Egypt, taking them into the promised land. Jesus is our deliverer from sin, taking us into the eternal promised land.
0: So here's the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this is what they're singing, accompanying themselves with the harps in heaven.
1: It's all focused on God. O oh Lord God, Kurios, the one who's our master, the ruler. Then he calls him the Almighty. El Shaddai, the Almighty, the all-sufficient God, who's righteous a true. Righteous is mentioned eight times in Revelation because it depicts the perfection of God. And true, of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, righteous and true are your ways. Those are your paths that we are to follow, righteousness and truth, because that's who Jesus is. Then he calls him thou king of the nations. He's a monarch. He's basilius is the Greek word, meaning he controls all the nations. And then the question is, who will not fear you, O Lord, because of how awesome you are and how majestic and how perfect you are, O God, is what they're saying. And that, O Lord, is curious again, master. And then it says, and who will not glorify your name? Who doesn't honor your name at this point? Who doesn't know your character? That's what your name represents. When you understand the name and the character of God, you cannot help but honor and glorify and worship him. It goes on to say, for you are holy. He possesses divine quality. Holy is hagios, which means perfect. There is no imperfection at all in him. For all the nations will come and worship him. That means they're going to prostrate themselves in reverence and respect and honor to God. Because his righteous acts are revealed. That tells us that what he's doing now in bringing forth judgment on this earth, they're righteous acts. It's a product of who he is to bring about the justice of God on this earth.
0: And picking up with verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished.
1: Imagine, the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. That's God's Shekinah glory. When his Shekinah glory was present in the tabernacle back at the time of Moses, people could not enter because God was there. It's everything about the character of God. And here's the kicker as it ends by saying no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues were finished. That means for the last three and a half years, nobody will be saved and martyred during that period of time because nobody can enter the temple. And we've seen all these people, these faithful people who've been in the temple, but nobody can enter now. Well, I believe a lot of people are going to die. So that tells me that a lot of people are not going to be saved in the last half of the tribulation. Some people believe because of this, no one will be saved in the last half. God is supernaturally reaping or protecting that harvest of his in chapter 14 so that they don't die because nobody's going to be able to enter into heaven. There's no intercession from now on. There's no worship in heaven that we see from now on. The time of judgment is here, not rejoicing. It's all going to be hell on earth for the last three and a half years, like mankind has never seen it. So we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be there? Are we going to go through this? Or are we going to accept Jesus Christ now? He's calling us. He's wooing us to himself to bring us into a relationship with him because it's not his will that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to go through this, but it's our decision because it gives us a free will. If we will turn to him, his grace has been given to us. His death has paid the price. We just need to turn to him today and accept him and surrender to him. Will you do that today? Because Jesus is coming soon, and then it's going to be a lot tougher to turn to him because of what's going on in the world.